Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest, uh, Dr. Alex Richardson. Uh, She was great last time. She'll be great again. She's the founder and director of FAB Research, Food and Behavioral Research. Um, She also is part of the Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics at University of Oxford. Uh, This time we're going to talk about cognitive decline. Uh, due to aging, dementia, and how food plays a role. And this will be interesting because most scientists, to me, laughingly, uh, don't seem to say that food plays a role, which I think is is probably absurd. And um, I'm glad that she looks into it. So, uh, Alex, thanks for coming. I'm very pleased that you've invited me back, Richard. It was a pleasure last time. And if I can be of help in shedding some light on why we keep being told that there's no evidence that diet and nutrition are relevant to the brain Mm. as well as the body. It is quite ridiculous. There's an awful lot of evidence, but I know why it is that we keep getting told, oh, well, no evidence. It's because of a reliance upon one form of evidence only, the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and usually one nutrient only, and this it has, I'm characterizing here, the kind of extreme position. But there's a big, big difference between diet and other lifestyle factors and the pharmaceutical approach. And while the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial is ideally suited to testing individual drugs against placebo, I think most people can see it's rather harder when it comes to establishing cause and effect, if this is the only method we're allowed to use, it's rather more difficult to do that when it comes to nutrition and diet. We all eat, we all have to eat to stay alive, so the number of different methodological issues make it pretty difficult if you're going to narrow it down to a single intervention, and nutrition and diet isn't about that. Yeah, people it. don't eat that way. You know, I... We should tell uh, the scientific agencies, you know, there's no double-blind, ran- random, placebo-controlled study to prove that eating keeps you alive or that drinking or breathing air keeps you alive. So people shouldn't be allowed to do that. Well, that's you know? right. I have to say, when the European Food Standards Agency was looking at health claims, there was indeed a challenge made about the issue that, you know, well, there's no evidence that water quenches thirst. Nobody's shown it in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial carried out in humans. But having said that, Richard, what I'm willing to do is to kind of chat through with you some of the issues that I think most people are worried about dementia. We have aging populations in all developed countries, and trying to preserve one's cognitive function is what most people would want to do. So more than happy to start really by... Even the issue of trying to define dementia, because Alzheimer's disease is the kind of best known 
of the many different forms of dementia, but also all the different terminology, age-related cognitive decline or mild cognitive impairment. The thing is, even in trying to come up with an appropriate diagnosis, we've got issues already here because there's no objective test. Really, what you're looking at is, as usual, behavioural sort of measures, reported or observed behaviour, and not that often or much further down the line might there be something even like a brain scan, let alone for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. That tends to only be possible to firmly establish postmortem. So, and even the issue of whether or not it's reasonable to distinguish as clearly as the diagnoses do between different forms of dementia. You know, if one goes here in the UK, you see, to things like, you know, the NHS's own website, it'll walk you through all the different kinds. There's vascular dementia, there's Lewy body dementia, there's, you know, frontotemporal. Now, memory problems do start in most people quite a lot earlier than anything to do with what you might call dementia. It's something anyway that, quite frankly, from probably teenage years for some mental functions, uh, early 20s for others, that really, as we get older, the brain does change. But in terms of the kind of degeneration that we are talking about, if we're thinking about dementia and the kind of cognitive decline that most people worry about and fear, and they may see it in relatives or in themselves and wonder what to do, what it is, rather than going into any detail about all the different types of dementia, I want to focus really on the fact that, for starters, things like depression, things like some infections, things like some of the medications that people take, um, various hormone imbalances, and certainly, of course, <clears throat> things like alcohol to excess or other substance misuse, all of these sorts of things can produce symptoms that are pretty much indistinguishable from age-related cognitive decline and dementia. So it's very, very important that people do recognise that, hang on a minute, just because I or a relative is seeming to be, you know, confused or not remembering things or losing their faculties, very, very important to get a proper assessment done and to think about the many different things that it might be rather than feeling, oh no, it's dementia or Alzheimer's take them as indistinguishable but they what's the point of of having dementia type a versus b or c or d i mean if there's no interventions that you know at least medication wise that appear to have much effect yet like who cares you know if you just have dementia or cognitive decline if you're not able to think and speak and process then you know, who cares what type you have if you don't know what to do about it? Well, I think you've raised a very good question there. And it is very sad indeed, actually, that despite decades spent woof, by the pharmaceutical companies trying to find, you know, some effective drugs and other treatments that might be of use, we don't have very much in the way of medications. I do remember that when oh, some of the first... Uh, medications that fine they've managed to get themselves a prescription license but quite frankly produced not much more improvement than three cups of coffee so 
really, and yes, those were based on, there is a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. Now, that is certainly one of the neurotransmitters, cell signaling molecules, that is very much implicated in dementia. So certainly some of the pretty widely used medications, they're based on inhibiting the enzyme that degrades that, with the idea that if you can retain more of your acetylcholine, you will be able to function better than if you're losing it faster. So they block the enzyme that breaks this down. Now, it was only, Richard, oh, it was a couple of weeks ago, May the 8th, I think it was, oh no, yet another unpleasant, and you wouldn't want it, side effect of one of the, the most commonly used types of medication. Do you know about proton pump inhibitors? Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, those are common for people who have like uh, stomach distress. And you know, I know they have a lot of wide ranging implications. I don't I, I'm sure we haven't discovered the full extent, but if you can, what tell people what they are very basically, what are some over the counter names for them? And then, uh, you know, what happened, how do they affect? Well, them? I think we've got a problem here because the over the counter names are going to be different in the States than they are in the UK, but the proton mm. pump inhibitors are indeed a way of basically reducing stum- excess stomach acid. The idea being that, all kinds of unpleasant digestive and gastrointestinal symptoms, indigestion type things, um, it's caused by too much stomach acid. Now, I'm going to start by saying that's a very questionable assumption in the first place. And there's precious little direct evidence to back this up in the case of most people who are put on um, either the proton pump inhibitors or other classes of antacid. There are other classes. But reducing your stomach acid, now that's kind of, you might think, fine if it makes the symptoms go away. Now, let me tell you, the very same cells that produce stomach acid for you are also absolutely required to produce something called intrinsic fact. Without it, you cannot absorb vitamin B12. B12 deficiency is pretty widespread, quite frankly, and even the measurement and the assessment of B12 deficiency is extremely sadly lacking from a scientific viewpoint. If, for example, here in the UK, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the States, you might even suspect B12 deficiency, they will simply measure what's floating around your blood, your serum. That test is so insensitive, it picks up only something called B12, but ah, 80% of what it picks up is inactive. Active B12 is what you need. So the test is, but yeah, B12 deficiency, this isn't good because the very same cells in your stomach lining that produce some stomach acid, you also need them to absorb vitamin B12. Now, anybody who is on a vegan diet, all of them absolutely need to know and most informed vegans do, that you only get B12 from animal foods for starters. It is very difficult to absorb. As I say, it's a very complicated, but it starts with intrinsic factor in the stomach must bind to, and then further down the system, other things must happen. But now we come to aging. Ah, in the over 60s, actually, many people start to get low stomach acid in any case, and that can also produce some of exactly the symptoms that are 
attributed to ectomacid. Basically, if you don't produce enough stomach acid, you won't digest your food properly. It'll sit there heavy on your stomach, might start bubbling and fermenting away to colloquial way of putting it. And you might feel uncomfortable and get a bit of reflux and what have you. But your problem might well be not enough stomach acid rather than too much. Leaving that aside, it is the case that these drugs, the proton pump inhibitors, they basically inhibit the cells that allow you to produce stomach acid and they absolutely are linked with depletion of B12. And B12 is absolutely linked with the deficiency of B, you know, B12 deficiency is absolutely linked with cognitive decline and dementia. So I knew this already. Many of the medics that I work with and who try their best and do know about nutrition and try to make sure that people are aware of things like this, to find this new research that came out, as I say, only about a week ago. Oh, no. The proton pump inhibitors, oh, good grief, they actually stop you from making acetylcholine, which is, as I said earlier, a key neurotransmitter, lack of which is implicated in dementia. So here we now have two good mechanisms by which taking these drugs, particularly in the long term, is going to seriously increase whatever your risk would be of developing serious cognitive decline, if not full-blown. So these are the kinds of things that the charity, as I say, now it's a kind of indirect link to nutrition and diet. But when you've got drugs as widely taken as these things, which are, of course, you know, for indigestion, and a lot of that is diet-related, might you perhaps look more closely at what you're eating, in what quantities and combinations, how and when you are eating it, and might there perhaps be some dietary changes you can make instead of just allowing, oh, here's another pill for another ill, but in fact, maybe doing more. Well, Alex, that's what I was going to ask you is can you separate the medications that people take from the foods that they should or are or not eating, or are they inextricably linked in the in order to help anyone at all, it, it, it all has to be addressed. Maybe well, I supplements think as well. Very, very good point, uh, Richard, because what it is, you see, and again, we do not train doctors or pharmacists for the most part, that nutrition and diet, the training on anything to do with nutrition and even drug nutrient interactions of which there's quite a wide range. Quite a lot of commonly used medications will indeed in one way or another have an impact on nutritional status. But there just isn't enough attention paid to this. This is why one of the things that the charity uh, Fab Research um, absolutely specialises in is professional education across certainly health professionals and also in other domains, of course, education, social services, even criminal justice with the links between diet and antisocial behaviour. But all I'm saying is, yeah, the fact that nutrition does affect the brain as well as the body. How could it not? Every single cell in our brain and body is made from ultimately what we put in our mouths. So this neglect of the monstrous role of diet in not just the physical degenerative diseases, I mean, you will know, Richard, you know, we all do, that um, most of the diseases that make up the burden of ill health and, you know, health costs in developed countries, they are the non-communicable disease. They well, are I, can, the I can tell you the, this. The breakdown of normal systems. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I can, I can tell you this. If you think, if let's say you're going to live to 80 years old, right? What's the only thing that's kept you alive for 80 years? What's the only thing that's come in and out of your body is food, water, air. That's the only things that have gone in and out. So if those things don't matter, that makes zero sense. How could those things not be important if those are the only inputs to your body and outputs, you know, for that time? Exactly. But I think we come back to, I did flag this actually in our last um, podcast interview, that what we've got is all the wrong drivers for where the research money goes. We're looking at patents and profits. And because you can't patent nutrients, and also, of course, when it comes to regulation of things like environmental toxins, because this is another one, of course, that all of the synthetic chemicals and the air pollution, as well as general environmental pollution, all of these things have indeed changed dramatically, basically since industrialization, but it really ramped up over the last ooh, four or five decades. And as I always say here in the UK, our own NHS, with which our National Health Service that everyone values so highly, it absolutely, when it came into being after the Second World War, it was never designed to be able to cope with all of these, what are effectively diet and I think lifestyle is the wrong word if, because that makes it sound like a choice. But all of the environmental changes of things like synthetic, you know, additives to not just our food, but, you know, flame retardants and all kinds of, they tend to call them gender bending as well as other chemicals that are in plastics, etc. All sorts of things that our bodies and brains have to deal with. And their ability, our ability to deal with these things has to depend upon how well nourished are we? Have we got the nutrients that are, you know, let's say liver and kidneys and other organs involved in ooh, processing and getting rid of things like that, that we absorb? All of those depend on nutrition, but we have been totally ignoring really at the public health level, the role of food and diet. And when you say about life expectancy, you see, of, you know, there is some research that I absolutely want to flag and it's a good kickoff for just running through then a few key points and what people might do because some stunning study were done um, and published almost 10 years ago now, in fact, just over 10 years ago, that were to do with, it was basically a top nutrition scientist, Paul Clayton, teaming up with a historian. Um, Clayton and Robottom published three distinguished papers in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine and they were based upon going back to the impeccable data on all kinds of things that were kept by the mid-Victorians. We are talking mid-Victorian England, 1840 to 1870. And the first quite stunning thing that came out of starting to dig around was life expectancy, provided you survived, oh crikey, early infancy. Now that is a big proviso, I will say, but life expectancy, if you made it to the age of five, was pretty much identical to life expectancy today, at least for our, what they tend to call working classes. And since almost everyone was working class in mid-Victorian times, that is the appropriate comparison. So they lived as long as we do, but their causes of death, massively, massively different. As in the degenerative diseases, you know, the cardiovascular and uh, oh, 
the whole things that go with the old metabolic syndrome, even cancers, these were remarkably scarce as causes of death. They lived as long as we do, but their main causes of death, for goodness sake, were kind of accident or infection, etc. And their health, quite honestly, right up until shortly before death, really was not impaired the way that these days in developed nations, our health tends to be. So that was their first pretty striking finding. So they really went on to map out, as they put it, how the mid-Victorians worked, ate and died. Now, as I say, their causes of death I've just covered because cancer, as I say, cardiovascular disease, dementia was vanishingly rare. So they went on to look at the diet. But before I come to that, the most stunning thing about it wasn't so much diet as diet compared with how much exercise these people got. Because that, again, is the thing that has changed so dramatically in our, oof, in the age of obesity, etc. Good grief. And they had the data. They really did. A working navvy was routinely shifting, usually from below his feet to above his head, digging ditches, etc. 20 tons a day. And you just think, is it possible? The, the calorie intake was the other unbelievable, and again, backed up by remarkable data from the records. The average calorie intake of your average working man was more, it was round about five and a half, six thousand calories a day. Now, only really in the what, what was this? What was this time period, by the way? This just was to... 1840 to 1870 in the UK. It was, wow, okay, great. And particularly England, you know, Victorian England, you know, but this is okay. just extraordinary. Only Olympic athletes in full training can uh, imbibe that kind of calorie intake and not get fat. The women were imbibing about four and a half thousand, four to four and a half thousand calories a day. Again, that is twice the calorie intake that... Well, I, have a qu- I have an important question here. I've heard this many times that up until, I don't know, the 1950s or later, that life expectancy was 30 years or something like that. How is that reconciled at all with, with this data? What, where did that number This is a from? unique period. I'm going to come to how quickly it fell apart, because I think that gives us a bit of a lesson too. And we've always got to be careful, actually, with figures for life expectancy, because if you're going to take the average, it can absolutely be dragged up and down by things like infant mortality, for example. Do you see what I mean? That's why it is a real proviso that... Only survive to the age of five, because if, let's say, I'm going to take a big extreme here from, let's say, some developing country ravished by famine, disease, etc. If, let's say, you lose half your infants before they're five, that's going to drag down your average life expectancy. So something like median would be a better figure. But coming back to the, as you say, life expectancy, you always need to be a bit careful. But this was a quite extraordinary period. We'd had the agricultural revolution. We'd had real changes in transport. And everything was pre-industrial still, really. We're just before the Industrial Revolution. So, quite frankly, this was probably one of the best nourished populations. And as for the amount of exercise they were getting, it was phenomenal. It really was. And working six days a week and however many hours a day, these people were extraordinarily healthy. The diet they were eating, I'll just say, it was broadly, as well as being organic, uh, because none of the pesticides, etc., and other things that would deem something non-organic were in... um, use at that time but it was it was a kind of super mediterranean type diet because people were still growing so many of their 
vegetables, fruits, etc. Again, the researchers had to do some real archive digging because onions, quite frankly, it was a case of, yep, fine, you would find them on the recipes and so on, but they hardly had a price because everybody grew the things in their kitchen gardens. But anyway, we come to how quickly this all fell apart. Absolutely extraordinary. That this is almost, you see, this is the population on which, you know, fine, it led to this massive, yep, going out there, trading all over the world, and of course the growth of the British Empire. And thing is, what happened? Well, we started to industrialize before every other nation, and so quite a bit of air pollution and those dark satanic mills kind of thing. Um, but also imports, imports of salted meats, cheap sugars, uh, fruits in syrup, confectionery, condensed milk, etc. Tobacco is another one. There was really not much smoking going on until the late 19th century. But in terms of how fast it fell apart, Richard, it's terrifying. The data show that army recruits, now there's a good data source, they absolutely record, oh good grief, Basically, between in 20 years from 1880 to 1900, there was a 10% reduction in the height of recruits to the army. 20 years and your population of potential army recruits shrinks in height by 10%. Shocking. That's crazy. (laughs) It is. So, as I say, this paper alone. Now, as I say, I don't think we'll dwell on this too much more. How different our diets and lifestyles are. In addition to height, were there, is there anything else that was noticed? Were sketches of the people drawn? Were can you with modern? Oh my goodness! Eyes, oh no question, else? the quality of the health of basically from having been almost Olympic athlete, healthy, strapping, what have you, we got to the point where yes, sickly, weak, turned away because they weren't even, as Paul Clayton always used to say in his talks, not even fit for, as to be cannon fodder quite frankly. So yes, the impact of basically malnutrition and all of the industrialized sort of bad foods and then bad habits like smoking, etc., together with the pretty bad pollution that started pretty quickly as the Industrial Revolution took off by 1900, to say, is when there's been this 10% reduction in height. We've now got a sickly population. This is So again, what I don't have, and the paper doesn't give, is, all right, then, what about the life expectancy of that? But to move on to the, what can anyone do then? Because we're hardly going to be wanting to get the exercise that those folk did. But on the dietary side of things, as I say, they were imbibing twice the calories, no question, of our sedentary, lazy population. And its quality was also absolute. We can certainly get more exercise. Exercise critical. Without it, all kinds of brain and bodies really do start to pack up and wither away. But if we go through what has gone wrong with the modern Western-type diet, and Richard, I think you will know, the United States really is almost mm, the leader in a not very distinguished field here for, you know, it's mm. the, yeah, the standard American diet. Some people right. use that acronym now, SAD, yes. So what's wrong with and how has this changed from the diet that really, for most of human evolution, to be honest, we were not highly ultra-processed foods made of synthetic nickels rather than with all kinds of additives, etc. The features I want to just flag, firstly, sugar. Oh, no. So much sugar has been added just about 
Everest food has got this packed. And since we've had this epidemic of obesity and type 2 diabetes, etc., this really pretty much the 80s, about the last 40 years. And it is from fat having been demonized and everyone having been told fat is bad and therefore low fat foods are healthy. Not person, not a lot more about a food than. And also, if we look at the sheer amounts of sugar and what that excess sugar does, it leads, no question, it's one of the contributory factors they now think to not just obesity and type 2 diabetes, but dementia. Because for quite a long while, there's been this notion that, hang on a minute, has brain tissue become diabetic, basically, um, insensitive to insulin? Which is the issue, as you know, in type 2 diabetes, the one that tends to be related to diet and lifestyle rather than the autoimmune form. So yeah, diabetes of the brain, or some people say type 3 diabetes. And this leads to some very, very interesting research that's been going on for a while. Um, Professor Stephen Kinane in Canada, whom I do know from the fact that he is an absolute expert in fatty acids, lipids, etc. He has been doing some of the leading research of this kind. If we put people onto very low carb diets is the idea but when you are not given sugar or very much in the way of carbohydrates which are absolutely not essential nutrients there's nothing essential about carbs quite frankly energy is really what they're used for whereas we do have a need for protein there are essential amino acids and amino acids are the building blocks of protein uh, and likewise fats there are essential fats the omega-3 and omega-6 which we talked about quite a bit in my previous podcast, but too much sugar. Nobody needs sugar. Nobody even needs carbs. Although I'm not saying that for most people, a diet with no carbs is a good idea. But what they are finding, no question, when you are deprived of carbs, the brain absolutely has to switch over to and can things called ketones. And my goodness, they are seeing some interesting improvements in rates of cognitive decline, etc. This is looking like a very promising angle with which to have some impact on cognitive decline dementia. And yeah, ketones and going into ketosis. Some people know about that from either their fad diets or their sports nutrition, etc. But yeah, there's some very, very promising research going on. And I would just say to anybody, you don't need the sugar. You don't really need any sugar. The other one I would say is don't think that artificial sweeteners are a good idea because there's now good evidence coming through that those muck up your gut flora, the microbiome. What, again, um, what, what happens if you have thousands of people that uh, provide what's dismissed as anecdotal evidence for a given protocol or method of eating? Does it just go nowhere? Well, I think what it is, as I said earlier... It's very, very difficult, you see, to get human beings to stick to controlled diets and let alone be double blind about what they are eating. So the randomized controlled trial is quite tricky. That is why you tend to need to use supplements and, you know, masking of that kind. And it never quite mimics what actual nutrition and actual diets, which have so many more components. But as I say, there are controlled trials going on with regard to this issue of can we if we get people to cut the sugar or be provided with, as I say, there are some supplements in the form of these ketones kind of thing. But yeah, controlling people's diets is tricky, but there are controlled trials coming through in those areas. And as I but, say... But, but in, the, in the absence of 
the double-blind placebo-controlled trial, in the face of tens of thousands of anecdotal claims, does, do the powers that be care? Or they'll just never adopt anything unless it's, you know, Ooh, I have to say, when it comes to regulatory bodies, they do tend to be, and I can understand it, it's for sort of good reason. But again, when anything becomes kind of overly bureaucratic box ticking and people refuse to take, if you like, the helicopter view and look at the totality of the evidence. It is quite true that if all you found is an association, you cannot say that you've got a cause and effect relationship. But when everything from theory, mechanism, lab studies, animal studies, because that's it. You can always do flipping heck control trials in animals. But then, of course, does that generalise to humans? Do you see what I mean? So it's the totality of the evidence that when you look at that, no question, cut out the flipping sugar to the minimum you can. That means avoid all those flipping processed foods. The artificial sweeteners, this is not looking good in terms of them disturbing the gut microbiome. And the links again between that and brain function, new research coming out daily. But I would be doing listeners a disservice if I didn't mention, good gracious, we need to get onto the fats, omega-3. Now, in my last podcast, I won't be repeating the basics here, but omega-3, the long chain ones that you get from fish and seafood, these are absolutely essential for brain structure and function, but they are missing from most people's diets in the quantities you really need them. We've got a big imbalance in favour of omega-6 fats found in vegetable oils and meat and dairy eggs. So have we got any, the association evidence is all there. It absolutely is that populations with low omega-3 intake are more prone to high rates of cognitive decline, dementia, etc. But let's go to the randomized controlled trials, kind of, you know, straight there. Um, but effectively, early studies, the first study, which was actually 2006, they did try omega-3, you know, fish oil type supplements versus placebo. Might this help in dementia? Now, that's a big ask by the time people have already got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. What they did find was some possible benefits for those who were still at the early stages, whose dementia was only mild. Uh, fair enough. And then a few more studies, but on balance, you know, the Cochrane Review does the usual, oh, there's no evidence. Well, there's conflicting studies. These are very hard to do. The people you recruit, certainly some of the bigger trials, the people they recruited, of course, were the Worried well, perfectly willing to help with a research study that went on for, oof, again, the period of time you've got to follow people. Dementia doesn't develop overnight, and it's no good at all expecting your trial to be the six weeks of a typical drug trial. Very hard to do. So it's all a bit mm, indeterminate, but oh my goodness me. I'm now going to move to amongst the vitamins and minerals, the ones that have shown, and my goodness they have, the most both association with dementia and cognitive decline, and also promise, not just promise, but some pretty powerful randomized controlled trial evidence are some of the B vitamins, vitamin B6, B12, and folate, the natural form of folic acid. So named because folate, it's found in foliage, in your green, in a fair few things, but whew, the B vitamins, very much a lack of, very much associated, and we've got mechanistic explanations for this. If you lack any one of them, all three are really involved in normal energy and you know, metabolism, and particularly in recycling and getting rid of a toxic byproduct of normal metabolism called homocysteine. If you are lacking, 
either vitamin B6 or vitamin B12. We came across that earlier. An awful lot of the over 60s are lacking B12 and that'll send you straight into neurological problems, dementia and the whole caboodle and folate. So a group in Oxford, they were following for a very long time a population of elderly people who were not uh, cognitively impaired to begin with. Let us recruit and follow over time and do brain imaging as well as a whole host of other data. Now, this was the Optima studies led by Professor David Smith, an awesome project that went on for many years. They did indeed find all the associations, those who are low in B6, B12 and folate, uh, decline faster and their brains shrink more than everybody else. But they did better than just association by a long way. They embedded in that, those Oxford studies a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial called VitaCog. And they showed and published 10 years ago that if you simply give those B vitamins, B6, B12 and folate, in pretty reasonable doses, but nothing too mega, you absolutely can prevent cognitive decline and brain shrinkage measured by MRI. It's a sad fact that all of us, as we get older, <clears throat> the brain does start to shrink. Most people have seen some of those pictures of what it looks like in advanced dementia. It's not pretty. So you really would think, wouldn't you, Richard, that when somebody as you know, distinguished as Professor David Smith, together with Professor Helga Refsen from, you know, come up with, and a big team, for goodness sake, they come up with this finding. Why are our public health authorities, oh, for sake, nothing was really done about that or with that. Some pretty fake, in fact, even leaving out their study and including others carried out in normal students, but we get the systematic review of randomised trials that comes up with the conclusion that, oh, B vitamins don't affect cognition in human to break. But then it gets better than that, or if you like, worse, because it took until, my goodness, 2014, and they published this in 2015, five years ago, from the same Vitacog trial. They had also collected... The omega-3 status, omega-3 fatty acids from fish and seafood of those participants. Oh my goodness, this is when it got fascinating. Quite frankly, the B vitamins don't help if you haven't got enough omega-3. There is a synergy between the two. So those who were in the lowest third for omega-3 got no benefit from the B vits. Now this was stunning because the benefit, it pretty much wiped out brain shrinkage and cognitive decline in those who had high omega-3, you know, in the highest third, and got the B bits rather than placebo. This was stunning. But then the fabulous David Smith oh, went even further than that. I didn't even know that he and Helga Revson, they had actually, in the very, very first study of omega-3 for dementia, published in 2006, oh my goodness, they had measured the homocysteine in that, the participants in that. That's the toxic byproduct of normal metabolism that you need B vitamins to keep down so it doesn't poison your brain and body. So what did they do? Having found in their own big Vitacog study that the B vits don't work to prevent cognitive decline, dementia and brain shrinkage without omega-3, they then went to look at the other way around. And guess when they went back to that trial of omega-3 for Alzheimer's, yup, the omega-3 requires that you have adequate 
B vitamin state. Because well, look, look, you've got high homocysteine, you're lacking those crucial Alex. B vits, then the omega-3 doesn't work. So this, this, this really flagged this. both something Alex. very important that everyone ought to know, I feel, and that certainly every health professional and every member of the public could do with knowing, and at the moment they don't. But it also flagged what's wrong with our research methodology to do even one of these studies with one nutrient. It's the wrong approach. Yeah, it totally is. It's like saying, um, you know, we want to see the effect of a heart but no brain in people. Exactly. We want to see the liver but no kidneys. That's it. No, no organism, multicellular organism, or even individually one cell organism can operate without the totality of its existence and well, its tissues, we- etc. So how it doesn't make any sense that the research would be like this. It's just asinine. It goes against biology itself. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you used that word because yeah, no, it is. It is, Richard. But as I say, there are things people can do. And then, of course, it's really what we need is the whole diet approach. And again, there are some good studies. Again, randomized controlled trials of let's use a combination of nutrients that have indeed been showing promise. Now, almost all of them... Oh, you do need the long chain omega-3. You do need those B vitamins and particularly B6, B12 and folate, but also other vitamins, minerals, etc. And antioxidant is not the word anymore, but a lot of the substances that are found in vegetables, fruits, you know, in particular, but yeah, all kinds of other substances that aren't even classed as vitamins and minerals, but which we do know from mechanistic studies, from again, individual little randomized controlled trials, can indeed do things like reduce inflammation and help combat oxidative stress. And these are the common underlying thing. Basically, our hearts and circulation, our immune system, and if you like, our detox systems as well as oh my goodness our digestion and the links between the health of the gut and the health of the brain (sighs) gut brain immune system inextricably linked with each other but unless we start paying better attention to the the bigger picture here which current research paradigms make it very difficult to do we are missing out on all kinds of ways in which just Anybody can, if they're armed with some of this knowledge, make some sensible changes to their own diet and lifestyle and find a diet that suits them. Because here's another one. We keep getting fad diets and not everyone, you see, does well on, let's say, a low carb diet, which I mentioned earlier, because certainly I think most people do rather better on a low carb diet than on a high sugar and refined carb diet, because I do think that doesn't suit anybody. Evolutionarily, it never used to exist. And we do know quite enough about the toxic effects of excessive sugar. And as I say, sadly, the sweeteners are not the answer. So what I would urge anyone to do is to try to find out more about this. And as I say, I and the charity Food and Behaviour Research and all the many researchers and professionals who contribute their time and, you know, knowledge voluntarily and without remuneration um, for the 99% of them, they have to take time out from some job and use their holiday to do it. We are all really committed to trying to do something to improve education of both the public and professionals, as well as sharing amongst researchers, because again, You need to know what other people are discovering and other people can always help you to plan your studies better if you're kept abreast with what the latest findings are. And as I say, this omega-3 and B vitamins, I remain blown away by this. The fact that 
the original from a randomized controlled trial with brain shrinkage shown by brain, that was ignored. Then you find that there is the most stunning effect if people have enough omega-3 or aren't completely at the bottom end deficient. Well, I have one comment for you about labels. I can see the power of them. You mentioned B12, but there's not just one form of B12, right? How many are there? So there's active and inactive forms. You said there's active and inactive forms, et cetera. So that label doesn't even make sense. Like if someone says, oh, the B vitamins or the this or B12, well, it's what, once what it form is of it? in your body and has been absorbed into the bloodstream, what happens is some of it gets bound to a protein that stops it doing its job. That's what I meant by the inactive B12. You need what's called holotranscobalamin, and it does get detailed. The active form is to do with when it gets absorbed, okay? But you are quite right that there is complexity in this. With regard to certainly, I am not recommending that people don't do some homework for sure and seek out advice from a suitably qualified professional before they start taking this supplement, that supplement, or dramatically changing their diet away from current dietary guidelines. Current dietary guidelines are by no means optimal, but flipping heck, we'd be doing an awful lot better if more people met them because almost nobody does. Well, what I want to know is this, okay? If, if you take, I don't know, a Krebs cycle in the body, okay, and you want to influence it or any, any cycle, there's not just usually one or two components of a cycle. There could be 34 intermediaries. There could be the interplay of the microbiome. There could be all kinds uh, there of always is, factors. let me say, that area is absolutely, but no, you're absolutely right. So how could anyone expect that a single small molecule drug could magically affect the right part of this whole process and make it work better. It seems to me that at best, and this would be very hard to figure out, you maybe um, add a little bit to steps 1, 12, 18, 34, and 45, and you hinder number 27 and 15, and then you do this and that, and uh, then maybe you have a chance of influencing this process in the right way. But certainly not with one small molecule drug. That just sounds absurd. Well, I certainly, you see, with the pharmaceutical industry, some of the, you know, drugs are indeed life-saving, life-changing. But I think the way I see it is where they make the most money, of course, is in, and they have not gone for it, in developing drugs which they can prescribe to ever-increasing proportions of the population for things that are perhaps better treated by looking at things more holistically in terms of diet, lifestyle, stress, uh, social support, you know, um, income and disadvantage. It's quite unbelievable how many things like, you know, high blood pressure, which again, even the measurement of blood pressure can be very variable. We all know about white coat syndrome, etc. But also there's these indigestion and other things. So, yeah, the pharmaceutical industry has certainly come up with some fantastic things, but I wish they would focus upon the ones that are not really handed out now pretty broadly, such that most people, even by their late 20s, I'm shocked these days, I really am, by most people by then are already taking this medication and that one and the other one, because nobody has ever studied in any randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials that need to do to get the license. They do not study them 
in terms of polypharmacy. Nobody knows quite what is going to happen if you're taking six, seven, eight, or in the case of the older population, if we come to topic we're discussing this evening, cognitive decline and dementia, it is shocking how many medications, because what they tend to do is, oh, they're given this one, then they're given that one, sometimes for the side effects of the first one, and they build on up. And I think there is now amongst enlightened clinicians, a real drive towards de-prescribing because the toxicity potential as well as the there is no evidence of efficacy of six ten or more drugs all given at once and just as you've said because the way that our bodies and brains you know human metabolism or metabolism most living creatures it's exquisitely complicated it is absolutely extraordinarily complex and you can sometimes be throwing a spanner into the machinery if you're not careful having said that some drugs are absolutely whoa life-saving life-changing but i tend to view medications myself and most people i know and work with tend to almost like a crutch if you've broken your leg or a wheelchair until you are able to sort out what the underlying causes were and or heal from something as fairly straightforward as a broken leg. Do you see what I mean? But in the area of psychiatric drugs yeah. and mental health, yeah, there's, and certainly for dementia, as I say, there is very little. Most of the drug companies have just backed out now. They can't really find anything that makes much of a difference. And then this latest data just last week that those oh, proton pump inhibitors, oh no, they actually very powerfully, and they tried, they tested in the study, a whole range of different proton pump inhibitors. So I would say to anyone who mm, is either taking these drugs themselves and has been for a long while kind of thing, or knows anyone who is, try and see if you could find a way to wean yourself off and do without these. They're likely to deplete your B12 over time. We now know, oh my goodness, they stop you from making acetylcholine and that is needed for cognition movement i mean no neurotransmitter does just one thing richard just as you said things are complex anyway i hope some of this as i say is useful to anyone who has just believed what the mainstream message tends to be of oh there's no evidence that nutrition and diet can make any difference there's shed loads of evidence finding your way through it alex so all right the biggest question here if someone has a problem, where do they start to put them? You know, they, I'm sure they feel very overwhelmed and they probably don't feel well if they want to improve their health. You know, starting from a place where maybe they can't think mm. clearly and they don't feel well, yep. which makes everything a lot harder to do. What, yep. what recommendations do you have for people to get on the, on the path? Okay. I think my recommendation number one would be, firstly, if you are indeed using things like alcohol, let alone other substances, to try to make yourself feel better, please try and get some help, if you need it, to stop doing that. That is absolutely bad news. Diet-wise, the ultra-processed foods that now make up oof, 50 to 60%, at least, in some people's cases, about 90% of what they eat... <sighs> try to reduce your consumption of all ultra-processed foods. By that I mean the ones which are essentially chemicals, flavourings. Again, if it's got more than half a dozen ingredients, or if you don't recognise, or if your great-great-grandmother wouldn't have recognised, what is this? Could you find a simpler alternative? Because eat real food. That really, in three words, 
is what most people would vastly improve their health if they were able to eat real minimally processed food you see processing yes cheese of course that's processed but quite frankly human beings for a very very long time in many 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 cultures have indeed you know that's not what i would call an ultra processed food it isn't so we are talking go back to the pre-industrial type and think i don't want to be filling up my body with these foods which they're all it they tend to be very high in sugar they have got an array of artificial additives now again let's not demonize all of them together now but there is some pretty worrying evidence i've already mentioned the artificial sweeteners that disturb the gut microbiome and in ways that actually appear to raise your risk of metabolic syndrome type 2 diabetes and obesity how can we have been sold these artificial sweeteners because of the calorie counting nonsense and find oh good grief they might even cause what most people are using them to avoid so avoid the highly processed foods and if you do do that you will also tend as well as wiping out the sugar and a lot of undesirable additives emulsifiers as well here's another they tend to damage the gut lining that again you don't want that you don't want things making the gut lining more permeable so that things that shouldn't get into your bloodstream and i have to say if intestinal permeability this is a factor in many allergies autoimmune and other guts but also other conditions i haven't got time to go into detail here uh you don't want no that problem. getting the no. fats right is the other one the omega-3 omega-6 balance Absolutely, people need to cut the vegetable oils. Go back to butter if you can, really. Because the idea that all these margarine spreads, vegetable oils, bad news because they will add to the excess of omega-6 and relative deficiency of omega-3. Fish and seafood absolutely should be part of anyone's diet if they can manage it. If you are determined to pursue a vegetarian or vegan diet, then look for the algal sources, where the fish get these mm. non-trained omega-3s from the algae, so there are sources available. And I would say to most people that are, they all vary, but a good quality multivitamin and mineral together with a fatty acid, and it'll be mainly omega-3 supplement, that probably would be a helpful insurance policy that you wouldn't need to worry about that much if you simply looked for, asked around, did a little bit of research. Do you see what I mean? I'm well aware most people can't even find a good dietitian, mm. nutrition therapist, etc. And certainly not when we're all in lockdown, for goodness sake. You know, it's a case of, but yeah, get on the internet, crazy. have a look around. The NHS here, you see, they do do a standard multivitamin mineral. That was shown to reduce antisocial behaviour, disciplinary offences, including violence, by mm, 26% in a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. All they did was give a multivitamin mineral, and it improved behaviour. We could have a whole podcast on that next time if you wanted yeah, yeah. to. Uh... <laughs> well, very good, well, Alex. We're out we're of time, but I, you know, I, I love your passion about this stuff and, and your knowledge, and I appreciate you coming back again. I'll, I'll have you back again. Well, um, I would love to, Richard. It's an absolute pleasure. And as I say, I just feel more people need to know about this. So once again, the website of the charity, fabresearch.org. And yeah, I'd be delighted to join you again whenever. Okay. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.